Welcome to The Landscape, your show about public lands in the American West. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Salt Lake City. Today, we are talking to author Mackenzie Long about her book. It's called This Contested Land. It's a deep dive into the backstory of a number of the national monuments that were on the hit list of former Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke as he was reviewing and possibly going to shrink monuments during the Trump administration. We are very excited to bring you that conversation. But first, we have some great news to discuss. President Biden has designated his first national monument. The president traveled to Colorado last week to announce the creation of Camp Hale Continental Divide National Monument. I was lucky enough to snag an invite to the signing ceremony up at Camp Hale, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So um, let's talk about Camp Hale a little bit first. So Camp Hale was a World War II training ground for soldiers who were sent to fight in the mountains of Italy. Camp Hale operated from 1942 to 1945, and more than 15,000 soldiers trained there. One of those veterans, Francis Bud Lovett, was actually at the signing ceremony last week. But the monument is much bigger than just Camp Hale. It also contains around 53,000 acres of public land identified for protection in the CORE Act, including land around Camp Hale and the 10-mile mountain range near Breckenridge, which is popular with mountain bikers and hikers. Biden also announced a temporary 225,000-acre mineral withdrawal in the Thompson Divide near Carbondale, another element of the CORE Act. The Interior Department and Forest Service will conduct an environmental analysis and public comment process on that, which could result in a 20-year ban on new drilling and mining claims in the Thompson Divide. So, Aaron, you were there at the proclamation. How did it feel to witness the creation of a national monument? It was a really remarkable moment. You're very aware up there that this is the culmination of a decade of work that first went into crafting the CORE Act, which, of course, passed the House a bunch of times and couldn't ever make it through the the Senate. And then that pivot that happened this year to a push for a monument. President Biden talked about uh, and gave a lot of credit to, to Senator Michael Bennett for coming into his office uh, and, as the president put it, refusing to leave (laughs) until the president agreed uh, to do this monument designation. And uh, you really got a sense of this is what happens when hard work pays off, uh, not just at the the Senate level. And you, of course, had had Senators Hickenlooper and Bennett, Congressman Joe Neguse up on stage, but really with this crowd uh, of hundreds of local advocates who spent a very long time pushing for this recognition there. Awesome. Um, So tell us a little bit more about who was there, how many people were there, and uh, how did you get there? I know it's kind of remote. (laughs) It is is quite remote. Uh, There were several hundred people who managed to to snag an an invitation. I I was lucky to get one, uh, and we were all bussed up from Copper Mountain up to, to Camp Hale itself, where the designation was happening. Uh, it's a little a little surreal as you, you roll in there, and there's the, the remains of, of one of the buildings there. Um, you're very aware that this is obviously a great spot to set up a, a training facility. Uh, and then, of course, on top of all that, you've got you know four satellite trucks parked out front and a podium with the presidential seal on it and, and all of that. It was you know, quite a scene there in the middle of basically nowhere, which is, you know, why this area is is so important. Some of the folks who were there were, of course, the 10th Mountain Division veterans uh, and the family members of some of the, the veterans who are no longer with us. Uh, you had tribal leaders from across Colorado there, 
um, of course, a number of government officials from inside the Biden administration as well. Uh, and really, it's a remarkable sense of joy. Several hundred people there to celebrate a, a really wonderful moment for the state. Hmm. Um, what did Biden say about the monument when he designated it? Uh, he, he was, I think, equally focused on the indigenous history of the area as well as the military significance of the site. Uh, he talked a lot about the importance of outdoor recreation to his family, taking the kids to learn to ski in Colorado. Uh, and that I think is part of the history, of course, is that without Camp Hale and the soldiers that trained there coming back to really found the ski industry as we know it here in the U.S. today, uh, all of that is is a really a direct result of what happened during World War II. Hmm. That's really cool. Um, I feel like that has been mentioned a few times, but um, I'd love to learn more about that at some point. Any other takeaways or intel that you gathered at the event, um, perhaps about upcoming monument designations? Well, the president, of course, isn't going to tip his hand on any of that, but I, I was sitting there in the front row watching the president giving his speech, talking to the crowd, and you could tell he was energized by this. He enjoys getting to do good things for the country. Uh, so I think just like he said when he restored protections for Bears Ears and Grand Staircase and called that the easiest thing that he did uh, so far as president, he got that same feeling coming to Colorado. And certainly my hope is that that he and and his staff remember that because you have uh, you have efforts underway at Avicua May in Nevada and Kastner Range in Texas that, that we've, of course, both talked about here on the podcast a bunch. And I, I would certainly hope that the president takes what happened in Colorado to heart as he thinks about doing more national monuments in the, the coming weeks or months because that reception that he got here in Colorado is what he gets anywhere he goes to do another monument. Hmm. It's funny, it just occurred to me that we literally created an advertisement um, with this exact scene in it where a candidate <laughs> creates a national monument and gets a round of applause. And um, it's funny to see that playing out in real life, basically just as we predicted. Um, it, yeah, it, it is. And I, well, okay, well, we, we mentioned the ad, we'll toss a toss a link into the the show notes because I think we're rightfully very proud of it it's a it's a very clever ad but yes that unveiling moment the crowd outside uh, of course the the real life crowd was a little larger than the than the fake crowd we had in the, in the TV spot <laughs> hey we had to stand but, our budget <laughs> right no you're, you're doing this uh, on, on a nonprofit budget but it's yeah, that, that is the takeaway. You you unveil the monument, you get a round of applause, and it's that feeling of, hey, look, we, we did something important here. Yeah. Um, and certainly you could see the, the president getting that as he was there doing the signing. Cool. Cool. Well, that's really exciting to see, uh, you know, art imitating real life and vice versa. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's talk to McKinsey now about monuments. Today we're talking to author Mackenzie Long about her new book, This Contested Land. The book is an exploration of national monuments, why they matter, what it takes to create them, and how they impact nearby communities. Mackenzie visited 13 national monuments across the country for the book, interviewing locals in some cases and setting out on solo adventures in others. Mackenzie, welcome to the landscape. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. 
So let's start with what fascinates you about national monuments and why you wanted to write this book about them. I first became interested in national monuments because I had spent a number of years climbing in Indian Creek, Utah, which is an amazing part of the desert that it became part of Bears Ears National Monument when Obama designated it. And at the time, I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't know much about national monuments, but I care about that place so much that I wanted to learn what that meant. And, um, and then from there, I thought things just got more interesting because the next year, Trump issued an executive order to review 27 national monuments. And his claim was that they were too large and they were an abuse of the Antiquities Act. And he was insinuating that he might alter them or shrink them or even abolish them in some way. And so from there, I started looking at um, at other places, other monuments that were in Trump's review. And I was curious about the stories that those places held. And I think the thing that really grabbed me was finding out how passionate people are about these places and realizing that they're also a little bit overlooked because national parks seem to get a lot of attention, but places that are national monuments are just as incredible and just as wonderful, but they don't have quite the same glitz and glamour as national parks. I want to ask about the title, This Contested Land. Until President Trump came along, it seemed like there there wasn't a whole lot of controversy or folks contesting national monuments, certainly outside of Grand Staircase in, in 96. Um, how, how much uh, controversy has there been over the years, and how did that play into your decisions uh, for what to visit? Uh, as part of this this process? I actually think National Monuments have been controversial for a really long time. There was a lot of controversy in the, the 40s when Jackson Hole National Monument was designated. There was a lot of controversy in the 70s when Jimmy Carter designated 15 massive monuments in Alaska. And each time it seemed like things were blowing up and there were big issues and people were arguing about the Antiquities Act and national monuments in general. Um, but then there was a lull, like I think after Jimmy Carter's monuments in the 70s, um, all the way until Bill Clinton designated Grand Staircase in 1996. Um, there weren't really any monuments designated in that period. I think it was also a long time of Republican presidents who probably weren't interested in that. But so things had kind of calmed down. And then Bill Clinton designated Grand Staircase, and there was a huge uproar over that. A lot of people in Utah, particularly Utah politicians, were really unhappy about that. It um, Grand Staircase, the land that became the monument, was slated for a coal mine, and the monument blocked that. And so that um, caused some problems or made people unhappy. And, um, and so then that issue really hadn't gone away. People were still upset about Grand Staircase by the time Obama was designating Bears Ears and other monuments. And Obama designated more monuments than any previous president. So um, maybe that's part of the privilege of being a second term president. He was able to do what he wanted. 
Um, but then I think there were people that were unhappy about Bears Ears when Obama designated it. And so then Trump was coming in and trying to play sides and rectify that a little bit or or to try and please some of the people that were unhappy about monuments. Can I ask, Mackenzie, you went to 13 monuments in the book, and we'll we'll ask you about what, how you picked those in a second. But what did you hear from locals when you were on the ground? Um, I know you didn't, you weren't really visiting as a reporter, but um, what was the sentiment at, at the most, at the sort of overall sentiment of the places that you visited? Well, I think I talked to more people that were in support of monuments, mostly because those people were very excited to talk to me and they really wanted to share um, why these places are special, what is so unique about them. And they were really eager to bring me out and show me around and talk to me about their efforts. Um, But I did talk to several people who are um, anti-monument. And the thing that struck me was that I, I don't know what I was expecting going to those conversations, but at least the people I spoke to, they love those places so much and care about them so much. And in in a lot of ways, I think they kind of want the same things that the people that are in support of monuments want, where they were like, I don't want this place to change. I don't want my access to it to go away. I want to be able to go out and experience this land the way I always have. And so for them, they thought that the way to keep the land keep that place the same was to leave it the same and not make it a monument which could bring more tourists or um, more regulations or things along those lines and so I think for me a really interesting part of this is seeing that even though this is a very politically divisive issue and there's lots of arguments about how land should be managed there is common ground at the base where a lot of people really do care about the places. And um, I found that to be really, really special. I want to be careful to at least put some context around the the numbers of folks who are supportive, not supportive. We've done obviously a lot of work here tracking that both on President Trump's monument review, where the the public comments were, were nearly unanimous, but also in Utah itself, where if you ask folks about monuments, now the 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 numbers we saw most recently were about about a two to one margin mm-hmm. of folks in Utah saying it was uh, a good thing uh, as opposed to a bad thing. So, and I guess this, this is both to you and to to Kate. If I can turn the tables for a moment, since Kate spent several years as well in Southern Utah talking to folks, how do how do the support versus opposition line up? in and around Bluff and and other towns in southern Utah? Who are the folks who thought this was bad, and who are the folks who were really in support? Yeah, it was funny, Mackenzie. I actually know all of the people you talked to for the Bears <laughs> oh, Ears chapter, which was great. Um, yeah, it was so great. Um, and I'll let you take that first, and then I'll jump in if, if you want. I mean, you've probably spoken to more people <laughs> about this in that particular region than I have, but it did seem like... Um, and, and I'm, this is going to be a generalization, but it, it is true for the people I spoke to, that the people in support of national monuments tended to be indigenous people, indigenous groups, and environmental groups, and um, 
and then some of the people that were opposed were um, some of the small town locals that are interested in driving four wheelers and ranching and things like that. Though um, the rancher that I spoke to did, he did not actually give an opinion for or against the monument, which I thought was entirely appropriate. He just wanted to tell me um, how special he thought the place was and um, the how through ranching his experiences were really intimate with the land. Yeah, it was Matt Red, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've had conversations over dinner with him about the <laughs> monument. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that's completely right. There is um, the oppositions, yeah, from the, the smaller towns. Um, the Reds are sort of a different interesting example because they run a ranch um that's actually owned by the nature nature conservancy in Mm -hmm. the indian creek unit um but but one thing i'll point out that um i saw through my experience is after biden restored the monuments um it really seemed there was much less opposition at that point Mm -hmm. um people had sort of already gotten used to the fact that they were monuments and sort of already realized that there wasn't a huge change on the ground coming anytime soon um, for the landscape or their access to it. Um, not to say that if you asked them, they wouldn't say they were opposed. It just seems like the emotions had died down a little bit and people had realized like, oh, this monument isn't a scary boogeyman after mm-hmm. all. Um, let's move on and talk about this, the places you visited. Um, you visited 13 monuments. How did you pick those? Um. Well, kind of like we were talking before, I was mentioning Trump's executive order to review 27 monuments. And I I looked a lot at those, and I think 12 of the 13 were in that review. And the reason I chose those was not about Trump and his order necessarily, but more that those are modern monuments. They were all um, designated after ni- 1996 or later. And so they all have... Um, issues that I feel like we're still grappling with, like how to handle and manage recreation with conservation, how to have different organizations such as the BLM and the Forest Service manage these places instead of just the National Park Service and issues like that. And um, and so I found them to be the most interesting because there's, there's stuff still ongoing that needs to be figured out. And... Um, I did also visit one smaller monument that was not in Trump's review called Castle Mountains in California. And I chose that one for the same reason that I thought it was interesting. There's a gold mine within the boundary of the monument. And when Obama designated it, he said, if no mining takes place within 10 years, then the land transfers to the park service and becomes part of the monument. And uh, I thought that was an interesting strategy of trying to reclaim a gold mine. And so... I saw that one made it in there. Are there any top level takeaways in terms of examples of how how a monument creation is done well? What are the success success stories to point to? Um, I do think there's quite a few success stories. I think Katahdin Woods and Waters in Maine is a good one. Um, that one was Roxanne Quimby, who had started Burt's Bees, had purchased a bunch of land from paper companies that were going out of business. And so this is private land. It was private land when it was owned by the paper companies. It was private land now that she owned it. And her dream was to make a national park with this land. But a lot of people around Maine really didn't like this idea for the same reasons we were just talking about. People thought it was going to 
interfere with their access to land. They thought that they weren't going to be able to go to their hunting spots and their fishing spots and, and that the park was going to be something different that was not what they already loved about the place. Um, and so there was a lot of opposition to this monument. And Roxanne's son, Lucas St. Clair, took up the the discussion with the public and he went on a really big campaign across the state telling people what the plan was, like why it was going to be good for them. And he was trying to explain to people that um, he's like, well, this is private land right now. We can do whatever we want with it. And what we're trying to do is put it in the public trust and allow you to have part ownership of it as well. And so through a lot of conversations with a lot of different people, he was able to convince people that it was going to be a good idea for Maine. And um, I think they gave up on the national park idea because it was going to be too difficult to get through Congress. So they switched to national monument idea because with the Antiquities Act, it can be a lot easier and quicker to designate a monument. And um, by the time they were ready to propose the monument. They had, I think he said it was like 70% support. So it was like a very, very supported idea. And then Roxanne was able to donate the money to the government and Obama was able to designate it as a monument. And it just happened that quick. I think this is interesting because it has been only six years. And as I recall from that time, the opposition was really Paul LePage, the governor who was extremely vocal about this and i think he wanted to see more logging and and paper Mm -hmm. production but here we are six years later and uh just now in in september there was a hearing on a bill to expand the monument that both senators from maine are sponsoring (laughs) uh so is that the lesson here that in in less than a decade from what may have been a somewhat controversial designation there's now bipartisan support in the state for expanding the monument yeah i think that i think that that is a good lesson because often these places benefit the communities around them in a lot of ways and um and people become attached to them um lucas st Clair, i talked to him for this book and he said that when trump had his monument review uh secretary of the interior zinke went up there to maine and he was expecting um, similar arguments as was happening around Bears Ears in Utah. And instead, everyone was like, thanks for coming. We love this place. Don't touch <laughs> it. Yeah. Don't do yeah. anything. So um, I think that I think that it does show that um, keeping places like this, protecting them in this way and allowing people to um, have access to the places and experience them, it often it often makes them uh, come around and they beca- become attached. Yeah, I think the thing that stood out from to me from that chapter and from your explanation of it just now is the amount of legwork and communication that went into setting up the monument, um, making sure that people kind of knew what to expect and um, listening to what they wanted. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think sorry. he was making a lot of changes in some of their plans to accommodate different types of users and try to... Um, come up with a way that different people could use the land in the ways that they'd hoped. Um, so while we're on the topic of examples, uh, were there any monuments you visited that you felt did an especially good job of um, of balancing recreation and conservation needs? 
Hmm. I mean, I think that that's something that all parks and monuments are struggling with a bit. And it's like, it's a difficult question. Um, and I, I think parks maybe are seeing the problem with recreation um, more acutely because they get more visitors. Um, monuments still tend to be less visited. So there it's not quite as, there's not quite as much impact from a lot of visitors. Um, so I don't know that I have a specific example of that actually. Maybe this is a good time to touch on your chapter on the Marine Monument, um, whose name I will not try to pronounce. Papahanaumokanakea? Yeah, yeah, that one. Um, <laughs> um, that, tell us a little bit about Marine Monuments. I don't think our listeners probably pay a ton of attention to marine conservation, although they might. Um, explain how that monument's different than land monuments. Well, because, so that monument is um, in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, so it's north of the Hawaiian Islands that we think of as the state. And it's just a bunch of little rocky atolls and islands. And most of it is just ocean. And so there isn't really anywhere for people to go. Um, I guess you could maybe go to some of the islands. But um, that monument is actually not open for recreation. It's just there to preserve the marine environment. And I think that that is what is unique about marine monuments because most of them there's because there's quite a few and most of them are out just in the middle of the ocean um, where people wouldn't actually go. And it's more about um, fishing regulations and other types of regulations of what can happen in those waters to protect the habitat there, Um, which is different than all of the national monuments like that are land based because those do try and balance recreation with um, other uses of the land. I want to touch on the Bureau of Land Management and this program known as National Conservation Lands, which intersects directly with the creation of Grand Staircase Escalante and several other of these monuments to come out of the the Clinton-Bruce Babbitt era. What is that program, National Conservation Lands? What was the, the origin of it? Um, so that program is, um, it's like a subcategory of BLM lands where the lands within that group, um, have a conservation focus rather than, um, more of a use-based focus where before this was created, the, the BLM really focused on, um, mining leases and grazing leases and things such as that, which is, um, why it had the nickname, the Bureau of Livestock and Mining. Um, but it, so in the nineties, uh, Bruce Babbitt had recognized that every time a monument was created on BLM land, they would take that land and they would move it to the park service to manage. And so the BLM kept, um, losing some of its best and nicest places. Um, and they, I think Bruce Babbitt had been trying to get the BLM to have more of a conservation focus for a while. And I think that um, Flipma was also um, trying to steer the BLM in that direction. Going to pause and, you there. Um, Alph- Alphabet Soup, Federal Land Policy and Management Act from 1976, which really changed you. the way the Bureau of Land Management works. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so so Bruce Babbitt decided with the with the designation of Grand Staircase that they were going to leave it under the management of BLM, which was the 
the agency that had managed that land before it became a national monument. And I think that that was the first monument that was left to the BLM to manage. And so they created the national conservation lands as a subcategory within the BLM to, to have the conservation focus for those lands. Is that you think a, a pivot point for the agency now, 20 plus years later, 25, 26 years later? <laughs> I do think so. Now there's quite a bit of land, um, in that, um, in the National Conservation Lands Program. And it does seem like with Grand Staircase and others that the BLM, it, it doesn't have the same focus that it used to have, only livestock and mining. It It is working on ways to protect um, protect places and keep like a wilderness character of a place, especially somewhere like Grand Staircase that's so wild and special. I want to ask about sort of proclamations and in, in, in monument designations. Um, you went to a number of monuments. One of them was um, Cascade Siskiyou. Thank you. I, my lisp kicked in. Um, and you mentioned in the book it was the first monument created to protect biodiversity explicitly. Can you talk about sort of how a monument's um, proclamation affects its um, subsequent management? Yeah, so... The a monument's proclamation lists the objects that are to be protected, and that's language from the Antiquities Act. And so, that is the the objects to be protected is the justification for created creating a monument to begin with. And so, the proclamation lists out what those those objects are. And when a management plan is then created based on the proclamation, they look at all of the things in there and then try to manage the monument so that it's protecting those things. And I think that monument proclamations used to be relatively short and it was listing specific things such as uh, a geologic feature or um, a cultural site and those were the objects to be protected. And now if you read the proclamations like ones the Obama administration wrote, they're really long and they include a lot of different things like many different species of plants and animals and different types of habitat. And with Cascade Siskiyou, um, it talks about the biodiversity of that region because it's really unique how habitats interlace there or intersect. And, um, and so then, so once biodiversity is listed in the proclamation, the, the management plan attempts to, to try and preserve that. Hmm. It also, uh, is helpful when lawsuits are filed against monuments. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you want to talk about that at all. Um, well, I think that if a lawsuit is filed, um, you can you can then cite those things like um, like if it was if the monument was designated to protect certain things, you can say, well, like this is what the monument is actually doing to protect those things and it justifies the existence of them. I don't I don't know if that's what yeah, you're, yeah, you're exactly. looking for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think we 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 talked to Professor John Leshy not all that long ago. But uh, if President Biden starts protecting monuments again here soon, I suspect we will have him back to talk more about the Antiquities Act as as someone who has literally written both the book and the academic papers on on some of that. So um, I I think it, it's worth looking at the the future for national monuments. Having written this book. Uh, do you think there are lessons here for the Biden administration as we see folks in places like like Kastner Range and Avikwame asking, hey, 
what about us? And do you do you think we're going to see uh, more, either more proclamations from the president? Do you think we'll see management changes based on lessons learned in the past? And uh, and do you see a future where Congress starts going back to the way things were, where Congress more frequently converted national monuments to national parks? Take your pick. That was that was like eight questions. Wait, let's let's. I want to start with with lessons for the Biden administration because it seems like you you went into all of these places and talked to all these people. And what what would you what do you think the Biden administration should know about monuments? Um, I do think that national monuments could be really wonderful for the Biden administration. Um, they uh, Biden and the Secretary of the Interior Deborah Holland have set out a. 30 by 30 goal to protect 30% of American land and water by 2030. And I think that national monuments could be a great way to reach that goal because it doesn't have to go through Congress. Um, and, and I think that, um, and Deborah Holland is definitely already looking at this. I think going forward, monuments need to reflect the population and the diversity of America and it, and there should be more of a, a focus on the people and the communities served by these places. Um, and I think that, like, just like parks, monuments reflect American history just as much as they conserve land and habitat. And um, I think the history of people in this country and the current population of this country is really important and really wanting to be represented by the types of places that are protected. And it's interesting that you just mentioned Kastner Range. I was just speaking to um, Angel Pena, um, who is um, the executive director of Nuestra Tierra, and he they're part of the campaign for Kastner Range. And he was saying that the modern era of conservation needs to go beyond charismatic flora and fauna, and it needs to also be about what the land represents for the communities around them. And so Kastner Range is outside El Paso, really close to the American-Mexican border. And um, the population there is very largely Hispanic. It's very urban. There's um, a large percentage of the population that lives in poverty. And there's not that many green spaces or parks around there. And so Kastner Range could be this awesome place that gives access to a community that really cares about those mountains. And he was also saying that the mountains really represent opportunity for um, the people around there. And because um, it's right across the border from Mexico, people see those mountains and they think of making a better life for their family. And um, so I think that there should be going forward. I think monuments should be focusing on um, things such as that is giving more access to different people um, giving more indigenous co-management um, over land that's important to those communities, which that's what Bears Ears really started. And, um, and I think that, that it could be a great way to um, also add parks in places where there's not much public land right now. Hmm. Awesome. Anything you want to ask on that, Aaron? No, I, I, but I do want to maybe jump back and ask about some of the other spots any favorite memories as you were putting this book together visiting these places um i felt like i had some of my favorite memories i had a really wonderful time in new mexico um i had in northern new mexico 
There was one man that I met with who showed me around and brought me to some special places. And in southern New Mexico, the same um, man, Mr. Pena, he met me and brought me around, showed me places that were really important to him. And um, I just thought it was really amazing how these perfect strangers that I reached out to were willing to come and meet me, bring me to places that were very personal to them that were places that they felt were kind of foundational to who they were as people and um, were extremely special. And they wanted to bring me to those places and be like, this is why we really care about these places. And um, and I thought that that was really powerful and wonderful. And I also just felt very welcomed. Um, so you're an expert on visiting national monuments now, I think. We can all agree on that. <laughs> um, what tips would you have for folks who are planning short trips, you know, maybe a long weekend to any of these places that you visited or a nas- any national monument in general? Like, how do you get a sense of the whole in a f- just a few days? Hmm, I think that's a good question. Monuments in general tend to have a lot less visitor infrastructure than national parks. There's not a lot of waysides or paved trails or things directing you where to go and what to see. Um, and so for my trips, I just started looking at maps, trying to get a sense of what the topography was like. I'd look up what the notable features are. If there's a peak that's special, if there's a river that's special or some other site that's really unique. Um, and if there was, I would try and go to that site. Um, I would look up and see if there's, archaeological sites or anything like that that'd be interesting to see um but mostly i would say people should be prepared for more like dispersed backcountry camping not in developed campgrounds but um kind of finding your own way where it's legal to camp and um just exploring being happy to explore on like faint trails or um or no trails at all sometimes that's some of the best hiking i've done and um, and just, yeah, to try and really get a sense of the place that way. It sounds like do your homework is the, is yeah. the tip, <laughs> which I completely <laughs> agree with. Um, when I first moved to southern Utah, I thought I'd just head out to Bears Ears and find, you know, trail signs and parking lots and toilets. And none of that was true. It, it, right. It, it's different from a curated, hardened national yeah. park experience. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's more work, but it's. I feel, in my opinion, it's worth it. Um, it's a more personal experience that you get in a monument. Um, yeah, it feels more intimate, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Mackenzie, I have one more question for you. This is kind of a curveball. I, I didn't um, send it to you ahead of time, but um, we've been we've been having a strategy meeting here at CWP and talking about ways we can do things differently and do new things. Um, and you come from sort of the recreation community, um, but have really strike me as a conservationist. Um, do you have any tips for the conservation community on how to engage recreationists better? Hmm. I mean, I guess maybe this is my perspective coming from uh, the recreation side, but I feel like without recreation, conservation would be a hard sell because that's the the way that I've I've experienced places and learned to care about them and a lot of my friends and people I know that's how they feel like they feel passionate about conservation because they've had um incredible experiences in places that mean a lot to them and so hmm, I guess I would need to know a little bit about your exact strategy and how you engage <laughs> recreationists right now but um I think that 
it's easy. Okay, I'm going to stumble a little bit here while I'm forming this thought, but um, sometimes it's easy to put group, uh, put people into different groups, and so user groups can be put in one box. And and so for we'll take climbing for instance. You could say, oh, this is what climbers like. This is what they do. This is how they harm the land. Um, this is what they always argue about. And um, and I think that that's an easy way to generalize, but that the reality is a little bit more nuanced. And sometimes if you engage with those communities in a way that's like, we're not trying to remove your access from this, but we want your thoughts on how things could be done better, then people get excited to participate. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that also um, we've been talking about advocating for more recreation access and infrastructure on public lands. And, and that seems like an investment almost in the future of conservation. So that's, that's mm-hmm. a good point you made. Um, cool. Anything else to ask, Aaron? Nothing else here. All right, Mackenzie, anything you want to add before I wrap us up? Um, no, I think that's good. Thank you for your close reading of my book and for <laughs> inviting me on here. I feel like I, I know I don't know as much about policy as the two of you, but I uh, feel honored to be here. Awesome. Well, I, I don't think I've visited as many national monuments as you, so glad to have your perspective. <laughs> Mackenzie Long, author of This Contested Land, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Well, we opened with some great news today, but here's a little bit more. On Monday, California lawmakers who have been working to expand Berryessa Snow Mountain National Monument began calling on President Biden to do so using the Antiquities Act. Up until now, Representatives John Garamendi and Alex Padilla have been working to expand the monument through legislation, but their bill, like many other conservation bills, got stuck in Congress after, pa- got stuck in Congress after passing out of subcommittee. The expansion would help protect Moloch Luyuk, which I may have mispronounced, um, or Condor Ridge, which is a culturally significant area to local tribes. All right, that was a pretty upbeat episode, and certainly there's a lot more to look forward to, uh, whether it's Berryessa Snow Mountain, Avicla May, Kastner Range, Plum Island, maybe, off New York. There are some, some proposals there. So uh, if you liked this episode, if you didn't like this episode, get in touch. Tell us what we could be doing better. Uh, you can email podcast at westernpriorities.org or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this because that's the best way for new listeners to find us. All right. Well, that's our show. Thanks so much to Mackenzie Long, and thank you for listening to The Landscape. The Landscape.